Listeners, Happy New Year. Welcome to the first of many shows that we're going to kick off for the 2023 year. Of course, you can't have a great new year without having the great Kara on board. So how was the holiday season and Happy New Year to you? Happy New Year, my friend. It's going to be a great 2023, I think. Every year, a little bit better than 2020, right? So, Gerard, I feel so lucky. We had a wonderful break. I am replete with Christmas cookies. And, okay, I'll I'll just break it for you in just a moment. I'm usually a pretty healthy chick. You know, I try and take care of myself. But my dear mother... Every year at Christmas, she comes and we make Christmas cookies. Mainly, she makes Christmas cookies with my children because nobody wants me baking anything. And there are two treats. Okay, Midwesterners, this is for you. My mother is an expert at making peanut butter balls, sometimes known uh, to those of us in Michigan and Ohio as Buckeyes. And bringing me buckets, and when I say buckets, I'm not kidding, of, hello, Detroit, Saunders chocolates this is a detroit treat also another detroit treat that is well loved in my house the only soda my children are allowed to drink is verner's which is a detroit treat as well so but i all to say i've had too many christmas cookies and as much as i love saunders dark chocolate sea salt caramels i think that i'm gonna have to take a break for a little bit that tells you how wonderful my christmas and new year was gerard and i'm I'm working on some resolutions i haven't decided yet how about you you're like a very disciplined person. I don't think you even need New Year's resolutions. Oh, no, always need New Year resolutions. Well, prior to New Year, we spent time on the road. We were in Bridgeport, Connecticut, visiting family and friends there. We were in New York City for a family event, and the oldest daughter had a chance to participate in a annual gathering of a 1,000-plus teens for a big social ball, so that was great. And of course, we spent some time in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, so Kimberly and the girls made a gingerbread house. They do that, do that every year. I can't eat that. But the girls made cookies. So I had a few of those. Picked up probably more weight than I wanted to. And I think that's a combination of a lot of starchy food, a lot of beer, and a lot of wine. So I've got to get back on the trail he of walking. Changed. I'm so proud of you. He, yes. ladies and gentlemen, he's human. <laughs> I, am, I am human. And my <laughs> belt line will tell you he is human. <laughs> but it was a good holiday. The only downside for me is USC football team lost in the waning seconds of the Cotton Bowl. To Tulane. Uh, Tulane, which I have to tell you, my brother was at that game. He's a Tulane alum. And he said it was major. I don't really watch much college football, but he was like, this never. He said it was an amazing game. So sorry. Yeah, I'm not a happy camper. Uh, (laughs) But since you mentioned Michigan, Michigan lost. And since you mentioned Buckeye, the Ohio State Buckeyes also lost. So we. Well, at least they lost. That's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Right, right. So, but besides that, it was good family time and uh, did some reading. That's about it. Oh, I'm happy to hear it, Gerard. Well, I have to tell you, so my story of the week, there's a reason I picked it. Listeners, as you know, we there's a lot of great stories we could pick from, especially having been on a little hiatus for the holidays here. But Gerard, I have shared with you and with our listeners that my children were out of school for three weeks because they have a two-week vacation, and they were out of school for a whole week before that in Argentina. 
which had my husband and I actually saying like, oh, I hope they're doing okay. We better get in touch with their teachers and make sure they haven't been absent too often because, you know, kids get sick and my kids have gotten sick this year, et cetera, et cetera. And those of us in education think about, well, I think parents, whether or not they're in education, think a lot about like, is it bad? Is it going to affect my children negatively if they're missing too much school? And lo and behold, December 30th, U.S. News and World Report publishes an article entitled, How Often Can Your Child Be Absent from School? <laughs> this is by Linda Lee Baird. Now, what this article is talking about is a little bit not so much about what's happened with my children, you know, how kids are really fortunate when families can take vacations to see family, for example, or in our case, see messy. That's something that probably can happen once in a while and kids are going to be fine. But especially in the wake of the pandemic, chronic absenteeism for many for a long time, we've been, those of us in ed policy have been talking about chronic absenteeism, which is defined very generally speaking, according to this article, as kids missing 10% or more of the school year. It's something that we know can have a negative impact on academic outcomes, on socio-emotional health, and in many ways. And, and the question is, why are kids chronically absent? And sometimes it's because of illness. Certainly in the past few years, with quarantine protocols, among other things, kids can be chronically absent. And now, as I don't have to tell you, Gerard, we're having a spike in flu and RSV. My littlest guy just got over what was luckily a mild case of RSV. People are, I think, especially in the wake of the pandemic, very mindful of not infecting others. And so staying out of school, which can really sneak up on families and kids and add up over time. And, you know, there is research on this and it's that there's a negative correlation with being absent too often and declining test scores, which I know we can argue about whether or not that's a great indicator of how kids are doing, but test scores have a role to play. And there's also research that says it can have an impact on just how kids perceive themselves. They can miss out on social things that make them happy. They can miss out on schoolwork leading to struggling in school, which then leads kids to struggle socio-emotionally and get frustrated. So it can be kind of a cascading effect. But there are other reasons, of course, Gerard, that kids end up being chronically absent. And these can be more nefarious, like being bullied at school or not wanting to go to school. And we sometimes refer to this kind of chronic absenteeism as becoming disengaged from school for one reason or another. No matter what the issue, the bottom line here is that for too many kids, chronic absenteeism has a negative impact on academic performance, meaning it has a negative impact on opportunities post-school etc. All of the things. One thing I wanted to point out about this article that I wish, and if you're listening, Ms. Baird, please, <laughs> I wish we would have talked about a little bit more, is what is it, can we be thinking about chronic absenteeism a little bit differently, meaning how to evaluate and mitigate? So if we have learned nothing from having kids out of school for a year, in some cases two years, we have learned that technology has a role to play. And folks who have been homeschooling or virtual schooling or sort of doing education on their own, taking things into their own hands for a while, these families can tell you that just because a kid is physically absent from school doesn't mean that a kid has to be missing out academically or even socially for that matter. So of course, when children are super sick, they might not be able to engage with any academic content. But if a child is, say, on a five-day quarantine because they have asymptomatic COVID or they're positive for 
for COVID and it's a mild case, theoretically, they could be engaged with school. And one of my concerns, Gerard, you know, this article says, oh, you know, some school districts allow kids to use Google Classroom to turn in their work. I would love to push all of us to really think beyond this. Let's think beyond Google Classroom, people. Let's think about the wonderful virtual and other opportunities that are out there that I think far too often states and school districts aren't pushing, aren't willing to take advantage of so that we can have a more seamless pivot when kids, for whatever reason, need to be absent from school, whether it's illness or maybe it's because they've been disengaged from the school to which they are assigned for a reason like they've been bullied, like school's not working out for them, like maybe they're not learning what they need to while they are in school. So I liked this article. I think chronic absenteeism is something that districts, if they're not tracking, they should be tracking. And the other thing to note, which the article does, is that parents have to be aware of this so that they can engage in fruitful conversations with teachers around when kids are going to be absent, why they're going to be absent. And then that third piece, which I want us to push on Gerard, is like what to do about it and how to do it better when kids are absent from school. Now, as somebody who has led state agencies in two different states, I'm sure you've thought about chronic absenteeism a lot, not just as a parent, but in terms of what it means for all kids. Do you, I'd love to hear what you think. One of our friends, Dr. Ben Scafferty, who is at Kennesaw yeah. State, we co-authored a piece years ago, I believe, in U.S. News and World Report, where we talked about what Georgia did when he was working for a governor there, I believe it was Governor Barnes, and there was just major absenteeism. Local school superintendents and teachers reached out to parents to see what they can do, and for some parents, that wasn't enough. And so the governor said, well, guess what? If you continue to have X number of absentees, we're going to send the sheriff's department to your home or other type of authorities. And so people laughed, didn't think it was going to happen. Well, guess what? Local authorities began to reach out to parents and overnight, I shouldn't say overnight, over a period of time, absenteeism went down when parents realized they could actually be held accountable, not just financially, but also civilly for not getting their kids to school. Now, some will say that's a hard stance, but when we understand that there are some causations between missing school and what it means for grades, we better look at that. And so there's one example. Number two, when then Attorney General, before Attorney General, local DA Kamala Harris, when she was running for office, she talked about using her office to reach out to parents who, in fact, were not involved in getting their kids to school. So there's always been a police dynamic that's involved. People can say right or wrong, and I'll let them debate that. But at least the article that Ben and I put together, it was one route to go. I'm also glad you mentioned bullying, because that's a real thing. And in fact, in Florida, one of the states where I know you do a lot of great work, DeSantis signed a bill where if you attend a public school and you've been bullied a lot, there's actually a parental choice mechanism you can use to put your child into another one. One that I've seen locally here in Charlottesville and Albemarle County is not bullying, but busing. In the early part of this year, for a host of reasons, buses were arriving really late or not at all, where there were some parents who were simply too busy to take their child to school or couldn't do so, and some parents were helping kids get back and forth. But the reality is some kids are absent due to transportation, and we know that there's a new company that was created. I'm going to get the name wrong. I think it's Stop, Hop, Drop or something like that. Yeah, Hop, Drive. 
Yeah, yeah, that's it. Or shot pop drop. (laughs) (laughs) This kind of sounds like a a theme from Dr. Sue's book. But entrepreneurs said, hey, let's help. And so I know personally a number of students who miss school because of the bus. So this is a great article. Uh, It's something we have to look at. I mean, and as you mentioned, I mean, just for our listeners to know prior to the pandemic, there were, at least according to one organization that follows absenteeism, is called Attendance Works. They said that there were actually 8 million students students before the pandemic who were out, it doubled to 16 million 2021 to 2022. So we have some work ahead. So a great article. You did too. What are you thinking about? So I'm thinking about our veterans. They are a group who we often overlooked during the pandemic because they're not K-12 students. And even though we talked about higher ed and how it impacted millions of students who, like at the University of Virginia, They were in person, they were online, they were staying in dorms, and then they weren't. They were online, some stayed in dorms, many moved back home. Well, one population who was impacted by COVID-19, in fact, were veterans. Now, many of our listeners know that if you participate in our military service, you can qualify for a GI Bill. And it's worth knowing a few things about the uh, what now is called the post 9-11 GI Bill, that if you have that benefit, the VA will pay up to your in-state tuition tag if you're at a private university, let's say University of Virginia or Indiana University, your alma mater. But if veterans decide to enroll in a private school, they receive a tuition grant, which is right now capped at the national level at $26,042.81. So you have tuition, but the post-GI 9-11 bill also offers a monthly housing allowance, an annual book stipend up to $1,000, and a one-time relocation payment for eligible recipients. Now, all of that, of course, kicks in when you are a full-time in-person student. Well, guess what? When students basically had to shift over to online, two things happened. Number one, there wasn't a mechanism in place at the VA to make sure that the monthly allowance for housing was still going to students. In fact, there were a number of veteran students whose allowance was either totally cut in half or they didn't receive a payment altogether. Why? Well, not because they weren't in place. It's because there was no mechanism in place for the VA to switch and say, wait a minute, I know you're now online status, but we're still going to give you your monthly allowance. The second thing that happened is you had some parents who were actually, or I should say veterans who were actually in process of relocating. And because they were no longer going to be full-time students, their relocation stipend also was impacted. So in a bipartisan way, which is great to see, there were Democrats and Republicans who decided to put forth legislation. It was passed in the House and the Senate this past December. Biden's going to sign it. And basically what it said is that the VA now has authority to pivot and make changes like this in the absence of there being an emergency. Because the uh, federal government had to call for an emergency, that then triggered the VA to do work. Well, there are times we're going to have other emergencies where we can't wait for the federal government to push. And so they gave authority to an executive agency to do so. Uh, The bill should be signed this month. 
It's going to prevent 60,000 students from being impacted like they were before. And with all the challenges we know that a number of our veterans face already, let's make sure we're not putting an extra burden on our veterans who are in school. What are your thoughts? Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, you know, I got to say, I know that, know that the VA does loads of wonderful things. We have several of my family members who are veterans who have certainly benefited from VA healthcare, who have worked for the VA. I mean, all of the things. But I get so dismayed, Gerard, because it feels like most of the time when we hear a story about the VA, it's something similar. It's they didn't have the authority to pivot or they couldn't make decisions, It's a, which the leads one to believe that it's just like this lumbering bureaucracy can't respond to the needs of people who have done so much to, to help the rest of us. It's pretty amazing and sobering to think about what our veterans often have to go through once they're home and the struggle to get the benefits that they are due under the law. So I guess I'm heartened to hear that Congress was able to come together. And I mean, I think sometimes we read a lot about about Congress not getting much done because of, to your point, a lack of bipartisanship. It's wonderful to hear that this is an issue people could come together on. It's just sad that it seems like it probably shouldn't have had to be that way in the first place with folks missing out on the benefits due to them for a period of time. And I mean, think about the many, 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 many people in this country, many of whom are recently made citizens who joined the military, who served their country in order to go to college, in order to do the kinds of things that some of us take for granted. So thank you for bringing that story to our attention. This is something, this is an issue I think that is lost a lot when we talk about education. So Gerard, on that sobering note, <laughs> on that <laughs> slash sobering note, I'm really excited for our next guest, because I think that this is going to be a really cool conversation about the great books with somebody who came to it perhaps unconventionally. We're going to be speaking with Professor Roosevelt Montas. He is a senior lecturer in American Studies and English and the director of the Freedom and Citizenship Program at Columbia University. And he's got a great story, and we're going to talk to him about, among other things, his book, Rescuing Socrates. So we will be back with Professor Montas right after this. Learning Curve listeners, it's a new year and we've got a great new guest. We are pleased to welcome Professor Roosevelt Montas, who is a senior lecturer in American Studies and English and the director of the Freedom and Citizenship Program at Columbia University. He is also the former director of Columbia's Center for the Core Curriculum. He was born in the Dominican Republic and moved to New York as a teenager, where he attended public schools in Queens before entering Columbia College in 1991. His book, Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation, details the experiences of Montas as a student and teacher, telling the story of how the great books transformed his life and why they have the power to speak to people of all backgrounds. Professor, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you, Cara, Gerard. It's great to be here. We're really happy to have you. I already said a little bit about your background, but by reading your bio, could you share a little bit more with our listeners about how you grew up in your education? And I'm sure they'd love to know what prompted you to write this book. Oh, thank you. Happy to. 
So, yeah, as you said, I was born in the Dominican Republic, you know, an island sort of we share an island with Haiti. So the island of Hispaniola has two nations there. And not only is the Dominican Republic a developing country, used to be called a third world country where I come from, but I came from a very underdeveloped part of the developing country. That is, I grew up in a in a mountain village. And really, sometimes I, I I say that it's like if I had grown up in the 19th century, I didn't have a TV or telephone, refrigerator, stove. We did have running water at some point in my childhood. Also, at some point in my childhood, the roads of the town were paved. So it was a very kind of small rural community. And then when I was 12 years old, I took a plane. That was the first time being close to an airplane. Took a plane flight to New York City, landed at, at John F. Kennedy International Airport in May of 1985 to join my mother, who had come ahead of my brother and I. We, we came together. My mother obviously came from the same town. She had a minimum wage job at the time at a factory in New York, which she lost not long after we arrived. So we found ourselves, my brother and I, living in a kind of distant relative's house. We obviously didn't speak English. My mother didn't have an education. My father back home had a sixth grade education. My mother had some high school. We attended the pub local public school, my brother and I. And through a series of really extraordinarily fortunate events, I ended up at Columbia as an undergraduate, not really knowing what the Ivy League was, not knowing what the core curriculum, the general education grade books program at Columbia that, as I say in the title of my book, changed my life. And really at Columbia, I began to forge a sense of who I was and what this world was in which I lived. And through these books that confronted me with fundamental questions, both of what it means to be a human being, but what it means to live in a community and what it means to live in a community such as America is a community. That education was so profoundly transformative and illuminating that I essentially have dedicated my professional life to advancing it, to trying to make that kind of education accessible to more people, particularly people who, like me, have traditionally been sort of locked out of higher education, and in particular, liberal higher education. So I wrote this book as a way of reflecting on my story, reflecting on how my education had sculpted and shaped my life but also making a case for why this kind of education matters and how it can and should be done in higher education today. I have to just share that personally, your story is resonating with me very much. My husband is an immigrant from Argentina, as many of our Learning Curve listeners will know. And he, he had, I think, a strong education in Argentina. But one of the things he always tells me he's envious of is that I had a strong liberal arts undergraduate education rooted in great books. And so when I'm able to speak with our children about some of these works of literature, he's always reminding me that he wishes he would have had that exposure when I did. So it's you your know, story it's, really resonates. Yeah, it's kind of paradoxical. I, I encounter this all the time where the education that seems least useful for college, a kind of education in great books, in philosophy, in literature, in history, in the big questions that one faces, which seems 
sort of useless in the job market turns out to be the most useful kind of education when you think about a life, not just a profession. So I meet people all the time who have had narrow professional educations who wish that they would have had the kind of useless education that we in liberal arts promote. I want to pick that up just a moment. Could you talk a little bit about the implications of a liberal education and great books curriculum for what some would call 21st century skills. I think perhaps I need to find a different term for that because we've been in the 21st century for a while. But how is it that they're relevant to vocational skills and to the skills that folks need for the jobs of today? Liberal education is more important and more relevant today than it has ever been, in part because the acceleration of knowledge, because people are not just preparing for one career or one job. And because we are in the middle of a revolution in what it means to be human, the structure of society, the structure of knowledge, we are facing ethical, social, global situations that are unprecedented. And there is no amount of narrow technical information that's going to adequately prepare an individual to navigate this complex environment. The best we can do is liberal education that is broad-based education on the fundamental questions of humanity. Now, I have to make a sort of a distinction that by liberal education, I don't mean something that you do instead of a practical, technical, or professional education, but something that you do as the foundation of a practical, professional education. Too often, liberal education is presented as, well, you will either study art history or philosophy or literary criticism, or you will study engineering or nursing or law. But in fact, it is a false binary. And the whole point of a liberal education is to prepare you in the deepest way to fulfill any number of roles that is no role in particular, but to equip you to have the fullest development that you are capable of, regardless of what career path you make. So it's not a career path among others. It is actually the way to empower and to equip you to achieve the highest degrees of accomplishment in whatever career you go. And that says a lot about what it can do, especially for higher education and students who are enrolled in college. What about the implications? I mean, we usually think about higher education when we think about the great books. We think of the University of Chicago. We think of St. John's College. We think of Columbia. But what about implications for K-12 to students? We have a lot of listeners who are interested in, like, elementary education. How can the great books be used to help ground younger people in philosophy, in these traditions that we all hold so there and to help them cultivate their own understanding of the world. One of the things that makes a great book great is that it offers models of human excellence and human virtue. And by virtue here, I don't mean the kind of moralistic post-Christian meaning of that. I, I think of virtue in the old classical sense of really excellence and exposing even young children, to both models of human excellence and achievement, but also reflection on what human excellence and achievement means. That is, reflections on, you know, we're always asking children, what do you want to be when you grow up? An education that asks them not what they want to be, 
but what kind of person they want to be, what kind of individual they want to be, not what they want to be, but how they want to be in the world. This sort of grounding in our own humanity and our own condition of freedom, our own condition of having the opportunity, but also the requirement of shaping and organizing our life according to some notion of the good, some notion of what we hold to be the best way of being. It's so important that this idea infuse the curriculum and the teaching, even from the earliest age. I'm the father of a soon-to-be five-year-old and, and a one-year-old. I keep that very kind of the forefront of the way that I interact with them. One thing I do want to add, though, is that some people think that some people translate what I've just said into some notion that what I should be reading my five-year-old is like baby versions of Homer and Shakespeare for kids or the great myths. Myths are so powerful and important, and it's and children love myths. They're like perfect for children. But one has to be careful not to fall into the kind of we're running a race for preparation. And from the moment the kids are born, we are equipping them and preparing them to give them a competitive advantage in, in academia. That's really not it. So I'm not an advocate of kind of ramming down earlier and earlier in the curriculum, the most advanced classical literature. That's really misses the point. It's the exposure and ideas and conversation that really should dominate the early curriculum. Well, thank you so much, Professor, for joining us, but also for sharing your wonderful story. Uh, speaks to the American experiment and the role of education in it. Before I go into my questions, I need to state that when I was an undergraduate student in the mid-1980s, I was actually a part of the cohort that was the hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has to go. Because oh, wow. at that point in my life, I believed it was too white, too male, too Eurocentric. And then I read The Republic and in particular, the allegory of the cave, and really seeing for the first time that that story had less to do with skin color or geography or gender as much as human values, human nature, and the whole idea of decision-making. And it was that, along with a few other episodes during my undergraduate experience, that made me actually switch a major in business to a major in philosophy. And so wow. I want to rescue Socrates as well, but I wanted to put that in context because most people who heard me on the show probably have not heard that aspect of my journey to study the humanities. So I just want well, to say if, that up front. If I can make a quick comment on that yeah. question, but you might be pleased to hear that Stanford has now begun a first-year seminar for all students, a kind of common required course in the humanities that, you know, it's not called Western Civ and it's not Western Civ, but it is a great books oriented seminar for all undergraduates. So I think they at Stanford, like you, have come around to seeing that simply rejecting the great books tradition because it's largely white, because it's old, because it's male, is too facile, too easy, a, a too uncritical an approach to the tradition. Well, no, well, thanks for sharing that information about Stanford. I'm a West Coast guy. It's always good to hear something taking place in the Golden State. Well, let's keep with the theme of the great books and Western canon. Now, as you just alluded to, there are people who still believe that it's faddish. And for a whole set of reasons, talking about the great books has become politicized, even within the academy. So Stanford is saying, hey, for first-year students, here's a course you have to take. With you as a professor, you as a scholar, and you at one point as a student, 
how do we talk to our listeners, whether they're undergraduate students or professors or K-12 teachers and administrators, about the liberal arts and why they matter to the study of human nature? You know, I would say that the basic condition that we all find ourselves, whether you are a pre-med or pre-law or in a vocational school or simply a young person who's coming of age, we find ourselves in this condition where we are shaping our lives and we have to make decisions every day about what kind of life is most worthwhile living for each of us. What things are worth my effort? What is worth pursuing? What is worth my time, my energy, my investment? And those are questions that cannot be answered by your technical profession. They cannot, they sometimes can be very helpful, like your tradition or your values, but they are questions that each one of us has to face. And the idea of liberal education is that the college curriculum should confront the student with those questions and equip the students with ways of approaching and answering those questions. And the great books tradition which is essentially a way of looking at the past and selecting texts, not just books actually, but works of art, sometimes architecture, sometimes might be even things like rituals, but looking back at the past and choosing prompts, choosing works that stimulate and challenge and equip us to think about those fundamental questions. This is a form of education that is both relevant to people of all colors at all stages of their development and headed in all directions. This is a kind of education that as as Cara said of, of her husband at the beginning of the conversation, that continues to pay off for a lifetime, that people at the end of their lives feel grateful that they had. So it is something that ought to have a firm and central place in every undergraduate curriculum. I'm so glad you mentioned the liberal arts beyond simply books and texts and also bringing in art. Let me bring in poetry. So in her final book, The Greek Way, classicist Edith Hamilton talked about how in the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer used poetry and assigning human vices and virtues to Greek gods and goddesses as a way to show Greek lawmakers how to elevate their statecraft. How do we use that as a pathway or platform to talk to young people, to give them the same opportunity to elevate what we have now, talk about our democratic ideals? One of the features of a democracy, well, the meaning of democracy is rule by the people. So we are no longer concerned with having the statesman, the kings, the royalty, the aristocracy trained in how to think deeply about human life, how to be informed by values and the philosophical and ethical understanding of the world. Our concern now is for every individual to be equipped in this way. The possibility of democracy hinges on the management of the regular person, of the everyday person, of the people of governance, the management by people of freedom. So how do we equip, not a king, not a royal, not an aristocrat, how do we equip a ordinary individual to participate in the collective task of self-governance, to participate in the project of determining and shaping our own future. What does an individual need to know? What does an individual need to be competent with? An individual needs to be able to deliberate, needs to be able to think, 
needs to be able to articulate, needs to be able to put things in historical context, needs to be able to be grounded in values and an understanding of the meaning of human life or some philosophy about the meaning of human life. These are the arts of freedom. These are the arts of democratic self-governance. Liberal education, ultimately, that's what it means. It means an education for the task of self-governance, both the task of self-governance as an individual, but also the task of self-governance as a society, namely a democratic society. What's your advice, be it research based on ideas or based upon your years of work in the academy? The term liberal arts itself, to some, is synonymous with conservatism, to others, liberalism, when in fact it's much broader than that. Liberalism, I guess, in the big L. How do we talk about liberal arts in a way to make it less politically or ideologically divisive and more in line with the origin of the term itself? Yeah, it's a really important task. We are in such a polarized moment in our society that even a vaccine to protect one from COVID becomes a political battleground. So it's very, very hard to avoid. And, you know, I've seen this with my book where it has been claimed by political ideologues in one side or the other of the political spectrum. The term liberal education, I think, provides an occasion for conversation. And I've, you know, thought about other terms that I prefer. And no, that's the term that I find most useful precisely because it invites the question. It invites an explanation. It invites reflection on what the word liberal means that takes us away from the specific Republican versus Democrat, left versus right, contemporary debates. What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be self-determining? What kind of preparation does an individual need to live a life of freedom? I like the term and I see it as really the occasion for opening this greater conversation. May not be good for marketing, but the fact that it gives us the opening to have the important conversation and the fact that our contemporary sort of maelstrom of polarization is not going to last forever. The term liberal education has been around for a long time. So I favor that term and use it over and over again as an occasion to get people into conversation about the fundamental questions that really education is concerned about. Great. Well, as we do with many of our authors, we provide, in your case, Professor, an opportunity to read a passage from your book, one that you think the audience would like to hear. Thank you. This passage comes from my introduction where I lay out in general outline what the book is, including what my life and trajectory has been. As I said, I have a special, feel a special commitment and special kind of dedication to making this type of education available to people who have been traditionally excluded from it. Here's a passage from the introduction. When making the case for liberal education to low-income students and families, I often point out that there is a long tradition of steering working-class students toward an education in servitude, an education in obedience and docility, an education in not asking questions. The idea that liberal education is only for the already privileged, for the pampered elite, is a way of carrying on this odious tradition. It is a way of putting liberal education out of the reach of the people who would most benefit from it, precisely the people who have been historically denied the tools of political agency. 
I ask my students to take a look at who sends their children to liberal arts colleges and at what liberal arts college graduates go on to do with their useless education. Far from a pointless indulgence for the elite, liberal education is in fact the most powerful tool we have to subvert the hierarchies of social privilege that keep those who are down, down. I am so grateful that you ended with that because you had me thinking throughout this conversation that those of us who have had access to a liberal arts education because of privilege, because of where we happen to be able to go to school or the families we happen to be born into should not be, in fact, hoarders of knowledge and and the the wonderful rewards that one can reap from reading these books. Professor Montas, thank you so very much for your time today. I'm sure I speak for Gerard when I say this is a fantastic way for the learning curve for us and for our listeners to start off 2023. So wishing you all the best. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Take care. And my tweet of the week is from Education Week, and it goes as this. Supreme Court to highlight Little Rock desegregation history and exhibit to open next fall. You and I have had an opportunity to interview a number of people from Arkansas, including Virginia Walden Ford, and we know a great deal about her story. And so for our listeners, when it opens up next fall, definitely take a look at it. So much of American history in terms of desegregation movement took place in Little Rock, and there was a very important role that not only families played, but the NAACP, and in particular, Daisy Bates, and the role that she and a number of women in that city, or really that state, played to desegregate schools. So that is my Tweet of the Week. Very cool. A slice of American history that we have to keep talking about, so so it doesn't get lost. I like that tweet, Gerard. Thank you. Next week, we're going to have the pleasure of speaking with Andreas Schleicher. He is the Director for Education and Skills and Special Advisor on Education Policy to the Secretary General at the OECD, otherwise known as the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, headed in Paris. And listeners, if you don't know what OECD is, you're going to find out next week. Gerard, Good luck as you seek to. What do I say? Like <laughs> lose health. weight. As you, as you get back, as you get back on the healthy train, I'm gonna have maybe. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try my best too. We can update each other throughout the year. I'll let you know how many how many Saunders chocolates I've had. But until then, I wish you a wonderful start to the new year. I myself am looking forward to sort of getting back to a little bit of a routine. You take care, Gerard. Take care.